Hey there, folks. Welcome to Filmography Club with Jason Cavanis. And I've got a good one for you today because I'm talking to a friend of the show, Ted Ringeisen, and I'm talking to Ted about Arrival, a 2016 science fiction drama starring Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner, and Forrest Whitaker. Denis Villeneuve's fourth English-language film, this one centers on Louise Banks, a linguist tasked by the U.S. government with translating the language of an alien race that has initiated contact with humanity. This one got nominated for tons of awards. It won several of them, including an Oscar for Best Sound Editing. Arrival is another of those Villeneuve movies that works as a movie just fine the first time you see it, but only through repeated viewings does the full scope of Villeneuve's accomplishment truly reveal itself. My guest today is Ted Ringeisen, a Los Angeles-based filmmaker and cinematographer. You may remember him from last season, where we talked about Green Room, and Ted's favorite movie, Jaws. We're old friends, and we keep in touch mainly through text, so, of course, any excuse to sit down and talk movies with Ted is always welcome. We get into spoilers, as usual, fairly quickly, so be warned about that. Spoilers ahead. And now, here's my conversation with Ted Ringeisen about the 2016 sci-fi drama, Arrival. And I'm joined today by Ted Ringeis. Ted, how you doing, man? I'm doing well, Jason. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. It's good to sort of see you. We're zooming yeah, right. here. <laughs> and I'm staring at a big black screen that's got your name across it. So yeah, My name in lowercase. Yeah. So I guess I'm not really seeing you, but it's good to hear from you, man. Yeah, you as well. Thanks so much for uh, coming back. I think you had two episodes last season. You get one this one. So make it good. That's right. <laughs> Obviously, this season, we're talking about the work of Denis Villeneuve. I think I'm finally sticking the landing on the pronunciation of the, of the gentleman's name. Before we get into the specifics on Arrival, walk me through your relationship with his body of work. When did he first pop up on your radar? What did you think about him at first? I remember when Prisoners came out and a lot of people... And I had just watched that recently uh, and really enjoyed it. But when that came out, a lot of people were saying like, oh, man, this this director is great. And it's his first features or something. And uh, is that true? You know, and but uh, at the same time, I think Enemy, I felt like Enemy came out like a month after Prisoners, which I still haven't seen Enemy. And I hear is really, really good. But uh, my first movie that I watched with him, knowing that he had directed two other movies that people who, whose opinion I trust really enjoyed it, I think was Sicario. I really, really liked that movie. It was really dark and he has a, he's a really confident filmmaker, which I like. I mean, from what I had known at the time, having not made a lot of movies to think that this was from what I knew his third movie was like, this guy is really talented and like, he's got great talent working with him, you know, Roger Deakin shooting it and everything. And, uh, and so, yeah, after Sicario, I was kind of like really floored by this guy. And um, I didn't really know how to say his name, Denny, Denny Villeneuve. Mm -hmm. Uh, And since then, I mean, he's one of the, he's become one of those filmmakers for me. And then, yeah, I saw Sicario and then watched Arrival, I think, may have been the second movie I saw by him. And I saw Arrival in the theater because I love sci-fi and it looked kind of like, I don't want to say thinking man sci-fi, but, you know, a little bit more intelligent than your run-of-the-mill sort of aliens mm-hmm. are invading. You know, it wasn't like a, and that's a bash Roland Emmerich. There's things in his movies that I enjoy, but it wasn't sure. a Roland Emmerich alien invasion sci-fi. Yeah, I mean, since Arrival and having watched Sicario, I just thought like, wow, this filmmaker is 
is someone to follow. I mean, I, I eagerly anticipate all of his movies that are coming out now. And then, you know, with Blade Runner, which may have been the best sequel since Terminator 2 or Toy Story 4. So that's where you're coming from with Denis Villeneuve. Okay. Yeah. Have you seen his earlier stuff, his uh, French language work? No, I haven't. And to be honest, I didn't even know until maybe a month or two ago that he had done anything. I mean, I'm sure that he had done you know, some short films or something like that, where most filmmakers kind of start out. But no, I, I haven't even, I haven't heard of them. I haven't, I, I haven't seen any of them. I haven't even really seen all of his movies. I've only seen two of them. I saw Maelstrom, which was from 2000, and it really looks and feels like a made-for-TV film. Yeah. It's it's fine. And I saw one that, to our American eyes, looks like you pronounce it Incendies. It's okay. on, on Sunday. I think watch that one. Yeah. Okay. It's fucking great. And right. he's got another one called Polytechnique, which is a bit shorter. And I think it won all kinds of awards. It's black and white. And it's about an actual school shooting that happened in Canada. Oh shit. Villeneuve likes his um, disturbing content. Let's just sure. say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and uh, that just seems like it's rife for nausea. Yeah, I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. It's critically adored. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to it. But yeah, his earlier stuff from what I've seen is uh, it's, it's worth looking into, especially on Sundays. That's really, really well done movie. OK, yeah. So my experience with his work, how I got turned on to him, I don't think I've even discussed this. And we're well into this uh, this season. Prisoners came and went and I never even heard of it. Enemy, mm-hmm. same story. And by the way, when you said that one came out like just right after the other, I should know this, but I'm not sure which one of those two movies was released first. Yeah. Wikipedia says Prisoners was released first, but I think it also says Enemy was shot first. So that's, there's some that's kind what of. I heard too. Like it felt like they were like Enemies is earlier movie, but was released after Prisoners. I was like, I don't know, man. Yeah. They both look great. They're, they're both really, really good movies. I, I think I like Prisoners a little more regardless. Both of those movies came and went, and I'd never even heard the guy's name. I never even heard of those two movies. Mm-hmm. I think Arrival may have been... No, I heard of Sicario, but I never saw it. Then I watched Arrival like on Blu-ray or something, mm-hmm. and that's what got me on board. So then I checked out uh, Sicario, and then from there... I just went back and started filling in those gaps. I'm still working on it. You know, there's still some of those French language films that he that he made. I haven't seen all of those. And he's got a host of short films that he made yeah. pre-prisoners. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that stuff, too. I've only seen a few of them. Yeah. So, yeah, that's where I'm at with his work. Uh, Arrival. Sci-fi movie? Yeah, I, I would say. Uh, some folks are a little hesitant to call it sci-fi. I think that's incorrect, though. This is obviously a sci-fi movie, not just because it's got the window dressing. I mean, the movie is not about the aliens and the spaceships and the tech or any of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, this is a movie about, uh, this sounds trite, but it's a movie about life. and yeah, Life and communication, you know, I think. Life and communication and living a life with no regrets and without fear. And I Mm -hmm. think that's the arc that we get from Louise in this movie. So the theme of the movie, I would say, is about life and being unafraid to live it. Because our protagonist is Louise. And at the beginning of this film, we find her... (sighs) This is confusing because the movie is full of what we assume to be flashbacks. So the movie is filled with, or it's, it's sprinkled with these sequences that we assume are flashbacks. So we kind of assume that she's a grieving former mother who lost her daughter. 
Right. Uh, as we get closer to the end of the film, we find out that these are not flashbacks. She's having language is going to fail me here because there's really no correct way to put this, but she's having memories of the future. Yeah. Yeah. She's, flash forwards, really. Right. And it's confusing to her at first, but all of that is just communicated to us visually, just through Amy Adams' acting. Watching this movie in preparation for this podcast last night, uh, this is probably the third viewing. So this time I was very hyper aware and looking for certain things. Sure enough, it's all right there. She's flash forwarding and then you, she gets a look on her face after that first one where she's got a look on her face like, what in the world? I don't remember that happening. Right. And then it dawns on her finally. And we'll get to this when she removes all of her uh, protective gear, the hazmat suit and yeah. approaches the screen and touches it, which is indicative of her arc. Yeah. When she touches that screen. Then she gets another big major flash forward or, or memory of the future, for lack of a better term. Then on her face, that's when she gets it. That's the point when she realizes, oh, I've rewired my brain to perceive time differently from my fellow humans. Yeah. There's yeah. a look on her face. And it again, that this is a filmmaker who doesn't just hand it to you via dialogue. Yeah. Mostly. There's a little hand-holding along the way in this movie, which I'm fine with. There's a little VO from Jeremy Renner's character, Ian, that fills in a few gaps for us. But it's yeah. nothing that's just, there's not like huge exposition dumps that are awkward. Yeah. Or funky. It, it kind of just doles this information out just little by little. And it's things that you can't, it's impossible to notice the first time you watch it. You have to go back and see it a second time. The circular nature of the premise here, the heptopods language mm -hmm. being communicated all at once instead of linearly. Right. It's communicated to us right at the very beginning of the movie. Did you notice right at the beginning, there's... A flash forward of her in a children's hospital. Her daughter is dying right before it cuts back to present day with her walking to her first class. She's walking down a hallway super uh, slowly. The camera's behind her and it's the children's hospital hallway. And that's it's right. And it's like a curved, like it's a, it's yeah, a circle. It's like a that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even notice. Then we get a cut to her at her university where she teaches as a linguist. And it's a shot where she's moving from the left of the screen to the right of the screen in a straight linear line. That's right. Yeah. It's, he's using the language of film to communicate this kind of stuff to us. Yeah. That's some of my favorite stuff in the movie is the buildup to seeing the, the spacecraft and the aliens. Um, Yes, spoilers, there are aliens in this movie. But it's so often you see in like modern day movies where, especially big blockbuster movies, not that this is a big blockbuster, but it has that has that look and feel of a big block and like scope of a big blockbuster. But it's so good at balancing those big moments with the like intimate, really small intimate moments. Mm -hmm. I mean, when she when she's in that shot where she's walking in the linear you know, like from left of frame to right of frame and everybody in the background is kind of in soft focus and they're all watching or looking at their phones, listening. And you just hear like little snippets of things from the news. And then everybody, there's nobody in her classroom. And then when she turns on the TV, you don't even see the TV. You just see her reaction to what's happening. And then you go outside the school and all this sort of like small scale chaos is happening in the parking lot. And some of that is, is, it's just that tension building lead up to that great shot in the middle of the field. I think they're in Montana or something or. Yeah. Yeah. Montana. And um, 
with the tanks, the yeah, armor the robot. Tanks, yeah, and then you see the spacecraft in the middle of that valley with the fog rolling in. I mean, it's a beautiful and shot. It just, and it just holds on that shot for like a minute, you know, and it's it's so and the music there is very alien. You know, it sounds like whales and uh if i could interject it's funny that you mentioned that shot because i'd started the movie and that that shot occurs maybe 10 11 minutes in and my wife just kind of wandered into the room i just bought myself a nice 4k version of this movie so i'm watching that for the first time and my wife just kind of wanders in and she sees that shot and then she's like oh i'm gonna you know and she just kind of sits there and watches the shot unfold and we talk about it and i'm like is any of this real is this all cg that we're looking at it's like this is all real i think crazy that they would go out to a valley like that and set up a little military encampment with helicopters and stuff taking off in the middle of the shot. The camera follows one for a moment before it tilts down. And it's just, there's so much to it. But my wife was pulled in by that one shot. Yeah. Such a beautiful and entrancing shot. And then she watched the rest of the movie with me on accident. She just kind of sat there. Yeah. I mean, it really is. Couldn't get up. It really is just so. And I think I read that the, uh, the DP of this, Bradford Young, who was actually fortunate enough to meet twice really really cool guy and just really nice and i I mean you know like i'm not gonna pretend like we were friends or anything but we had a couple of like friendly conversations and Mm -hmm. he was super cool and i think i remember reading that when that establishing shot of the military base and the spaceship when that fog was rolling in they that none of that was planned like obviously the spaceship is animated and i think a couple of the helicopters are also cgi but they may have just had as like a reference point for the camera to tilt down to there there may have been a couple of like tents and like canopies set up for the military base but i think most of that is animated but the fog rolling in and the valley like that all was there wow and they just happened to capture they were like oh my god we have to roll on this all of that just happened to be there when they were shooting. Amazing. That's one of the most memorable shots in the film. Oh, it's, I mean, it's one of those shots that I think will live on in film history forever. It's so haunting and it really makes, and it's, it's great because it ties in with, uh, Amy Paul, uh, Amy Adams character, you know, we're seeing it as the audience for the first time with her. There was a lot of buildup to that. It was very, uh, I don't want to say Hitchcockian, but there was a lot of suspense to it. We're seeing other people's reaction to it. And I watched it for the third time in preparation for this, like I normally do with closed captioning on, because I want to know every little nugget of information that the movie's trying to communicate to me. Right. And sure enough, you know, all the stuff in the background, it put the text up there of what the news people are saying in the background. And it was like, that was important to the filmmaker to communicate that stuff to us. Even if it is just mixed really low, way in the background, we're still supposed to be getting fed that info that shot that you mentioned there you know what it reminded me of as i was watching it the establishing shot of shawshank prison absolutely yeah that long yeah because that shot goes on forever too Mm -hmm. yeah that's right yeah that's that's a really good comparison there i like that it's just one of uh villeneuve's maker's marks just something he keeps going back to is that aerial shot he loves Mm -hmm. his aerial shots and prisoners would get a bunch they look like they're shot from maybe 100 200 yards up they're not like plain views right but they're higher than you would expect them to be just looking down in prisoners we get the neighborhood like that we get several of those in enemy absolutely of course in arrival we get several of those Sicarios brimming with right. shots like that. Right. Blade Runner 2049. It, it seems to be something he keeps going back to time and again yeah. to, to establish geography. And it also, it makes... And mood. 
And mood, absolutely. And um, it makes the, even though it takes that, where the particular spaceship that we spend a lot of our time with, or most of our time with, even in that setting, the setting itself looks alien. You know, I mean, just the, Mm -hmm. I mean, it looks like it could be an alien planet. So it's like everything around, they do such a good job of making everything involving the craft including the environment, very alien and different. Like, I mean, things that you're like, wow, I've never really like conceptually or audibly or, you know, I've never seen anything like that before where it it truly feels like completely alien. The only other movie that pops into my head off the top of my head that treats alien stuff that way as being truly alien uh, would be, I guess, Annihilation. Where, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like with this, the aliens themselves, the heptapods look yeah. complete. Like there's no reason why Star Wars or Star Trek, they, they get this wrong. And that's fine because it's they do what they do and that's fine. I'm not knocking right. either of those franchises. But aliens would not look like us. Right, right. We look like apes that evolved in order to survive on the savannas of Africa on planet Earth. Right. That's right. what we look like. And yeah. I don't care if you color our skin green or put a few little wrinkles on our foreheads or whatever right. it is that you do to make a right. Star Trek alien. That's not what an alien is going to look like. Right. Almost certainly not. Now, okay, in an infinite universe, maybe. Maybe somewhere maybe. out there. But right. more yeah. likely, if we ever ran into an alien presence, it would be I don't know if they would look like the heptapods, but the heptapods were the most alien thing I've ever seen on screen. Oh, yeah. This side of Annihilation, anyway. Yeah. Uh, Their tech was completely bizarre. We saw no computers. It looked like it was made out of, like, not even metal. It looked like stone, almost. Yeah, it's it's kind of H.R. Geiger-y in the sense that it's, like, black obsidian environments but it's kind of rough it has ridges yeah i mean it looks like uh like black dried sand or something you know like like small like rivets in the sand it's very and then all with this like iphone (laughs) type screen Mm -hmm. and you don't know if they're in water and you know i mean it's like this weird atmosphere smoke stuff so they're always kind of hidden and and mist fog and it's really kind of scary on it and i mean they're they're the way that they communicate like the vocalizations that they make or i mean and they focus they do such a good job and amy adams does such a great job of conveying that fear and i mean she just looks absolutely terrified like they're like trumpeting at her and she gets really scared and then and i was listening to it on a nice surround sound system last night and they really like i mean the sound design is is so good it, it, and it's truly alien really to drive that point home i think they were trying to purposefully evoke whales and they kind of look like squids like giant squids or... kind of but they've got yeah. what appear to be maybe bones it, it, yeah. it almost looks finger like yeah they look like fingers yeah like they that they walk around on It's using the window dressing of aliens coming to Earth and big giant spaceships. Mm-hmm. And it's this huge, momentous event, right? It covers the entire planet. The ent- there, there's riots, there's religious implications. There's all sorts of stuff going on in the, the world during this movie. But we only see that stuff through television screens. Yeah. This is really a very personal story about one particular person. Mm-hmm. 
It's it's not about all that shit that's going on on CNN. It's about Louise. Yeah. And her at the beginning of the film, she's afraid to live. She does not like change. For example, after everyone on the planet knows that aliens are real and it's a big fucking deal, she just goes right back to work and she seems kind of like, oh, I'm surprised that no one's here. Like she's the yeah. only person on campus. Yeah. You know, just little things like that. She's hesitant to deal with new things being thrown at her. Right. Um, yeah. She's on the phone with her mother after this whole thing happens because that's what would happen. Mom's going right. to give you a call. Aliens land. You're going to get a call from your mother. Guaranteed. Right. And she says, you know me, I'm about the same. Right. Yeah. She seems hesitant to live life. She lives life almost reluctantly. That's not to say she's depressed and wants to die, but she's kind of dragging her feet. And the movie knows that we're going to assume that it's probably because she lost a child and probably got a divorce in the fallout of that. That turns out to not be true, of course. Mm -hmm. But this is all shown to us through the way that she talks to her mother, you know, goes to work and finds no one else there. She isolates herself in her house that seems like it's out in the country somewhere. Like it's Mm -hmm. like this remote house. She doesn't really live life at all. She observes it through windows and through TV and computer screens, but that's about it. And that's kind of fleshed out a little bit more when she meets the aliens. The first time that she comes into contact with the heptapods, she's got about, what, three or four layers between her and them. Mm -hmm. And it's still one of the most, it it seems like it was a very upsetting experience to her. Yeah. Yeah. To yeah. come face to whatever with alien life, intelligent alien life for the first time. Right. And of course, her arc is shown to us as she slowly strips away those protective layers throughout the course of the movie. Mm-hmm. Literally, when she just takes off her, right. yeah. her, uh, her hazmat suit, which I have to agree with the guys in the control room. That's a terrible idea. The number yeah. one killer of uh, indigenous peoples. Right. Were the germs, the, right. more, yeah. the quote unquote, more advanced civilization brought with yeah. them. So it, it's not as it's not stupid on like a Prometheus level where they're just right. decide to take their masks off. You know, they have like a like a starling or some sort of bird in a cage to Yeah, of they've got the canary the in the coal mine yeah. type type thing. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I think you're right. It's you know, earlier on in the film, her classroom, like the people that she's trying to reach about and, and teach about linguistics, it gets smaller and smaller. Due to the presence of the aliens, her classroom is empty. And then it's nearly empty in the ver- one of the very first scenes of the movie. And then it's completely empty when she goes back to work. And then through figuring out the alien language and communicating, she actually, towards the end of the movie, she reaches a worldwide audience, you know, because she teaches the world, hey, this is the language, you know, one of 12. That's what, because the- there's 12 craft around the world. And each one contain each craft is trying to communicate with the different parts of the world. This segment, you know, because at in the one part of the movie, the alien splays out the, its language and it it creates a the fraction one of twelve. So once they place all that together, and she realizes it, she writes that book that then teaches the world to communicate without time. You know, which is a right. really interesting. And it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie is the voiceover with Jeremy Renner's character that you mentioned earlier. And it's just like a two a two minute montage of him explaining the different areas of the globe, what they discovered to contribute to what the right. alien. And it's so cool because it still keeps it doesn't over explain, but it catches you 
the audience member up of over the course of time, what human beings have discovered. And it's not just the U.S. scientists or, you know, like physicists or linguistics professors have figured out. Like, I think some guy from like Pakistan figures out they don't speak in a way that deals with past or present. They only say words that are, you know, like tool or weapon or every circular pattern that they put on those screens are a series of words that you can then determine what they're trying to communicate. So they they explain it as if trying to draw and write a sentence with two hands and meeting in the middle. You can understand what they're talking about. So then it makes sense later on in the movie when she's on the phone in the present, but in the future, she's waiting to hear the information that I think his name, the the Chinese general is um, General Shang. Yeah, General Shang. Who, I mean, China has determined that um, the aliens, the message that they received is deliver weapon or use weapon or use something weapon. like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And as opposed to uh, what, because use and tool, like, so they're trying to establish whether or not it's a weapon or a tool because those can be misconstrued. The Chinese government was using uh, the tile game, Mahjong, I think it's called. Right, yeah. So everything and- was like a chess game. Yeah, everything was a competition. So every every time you exchange mm-hmm. ideas or try to communicate with somebody, there's an implied winner and loser that right. way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's totally incomplete. So when they say use weapon, they haven't developed the vocabulary right. to understand that that doesn't mean weapon, it means tool. Right. And of course, the tool in question is their language itself. It's language and, and time not being linear. It's it's uh it's a loop, you know. And so he's in the future, whispering in her ear while she's on the phone with him in the present, explaining to him or telling him what his wife's dying words were. But she's only able to do that at the same time in the, you know, like in the infinite loop of time. It, it's I mean, it's it's uh, it's hard to articulate. But when you watch it, it's very clear as to what's happening. And it's really clever. I mean, I've never really seen the climax of the movie is a phone call, you know what I mean? And it's, it's riveting. I mean, it really is like, Oh my God, you know, like you have the ticking clock. Cause the, not that there's a villain in this movie, there's obstacles. I mean, you have the two sort of soldiers that take matters into their own hand. Cause they're watching sort of like a, yeah, the Alex Jones type like Alex Jones yeah. type thing, but they don't jam it down your throat, you know, and like right. the CIA guy is a little bit, he's not necessarily a bad guy. I mean, what he's doing, he's doing his job, you know, which is what I like. There's no, the, the only villain in this um, movie really is not great communication, you know, <laughs> or like a lack of communication, which is refreshing and um, because it's not like the evil, like. I mean, the Chinese general is scared, but he's not necessarily a bad guy. They just don't understand what they deem to be a potential threat, and they just don't understand it. And by the use of language, we can all kind of come together. I'm sure it might have been tempting on some studio executive's part to portray certain governments as being the quote-unquote bad guys. Sure, well, I guess not China. They're a huge fucking market for Hollywood now. So yeah, they, they, they do tend to bend over for China, but sure. they don't do that here. In fact, it's kind of commendable that General Shang, once he real he gets a message that he believes to be use weapon, he takes that as, oh, they want humans to fight amongst ourselves. Well, we're going to team up and fight them. Right. Or, or something the aliens little- are saying we're going to use our weapon against you. 
there's something about that, that the Chinese do display a human solidarity that's kind of reassuring in the movie. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not an us versus all of you. It's yeah. more of a, you know, this sort of reminds me of uh, Watchmen in a way. I, and in fact, I thought of Watchmen because of the, the climax of Watchmen. I'm not going to blow that for anyone that hasn't read it, or I guess you could watch it. You should read it. Yeah, read it. There's something in that that Dr. Manhattan said that applies here as well. It's about free will. And if you know the future, why don't you just avoid it? Right. And and the way he responded was he said, no, we're all puppets. It's just that I'm, I'm a puppet that can see my strings. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm still a slave to doing what I'm going to do anyway. There's no way around it. This isn't one of those things where if I make a decision here, then that splinters off a new reality, another universe where in one I did the thing and in the other I did not. And we live with the consequences of those actions or inactions. And now there's two different universes. This is like, no, no, no. That's not how it is at all. There's only one way that things are going to be. Mm-hmm. And you know, the past, the present, and the future, they all occur simultaneously, kind of, or at least right. these guys are looking at it that way. We're just bound by our flesh to experience them one after another. And yeah. this movie goes a long way and does a really good job at kind of explaining to general audiences that that's not how things are. Right. Yeah. It's a lot to take in for just it the is. average yeah. viewer. It's, it's, I mean, I know that the the ending of Arrival, at least when it came out, it was pretty divisive for a lot of people. I know a lot of people were like, yeah, I liked it until the last 10 minutes. And I was like, man, that's when I was, it's one of those concepts that are like, okay, you know, I mean, but in, in science fiction or in movies like this, I mean, I would say that this is about as science fiction as uh, like close encounters, you know, like it's just visitors coming to us. I don't necessarily consider Close Encounters a science fiction movie, but it definitely has elements of science fiction in it. But I, I, I kind of like when it doesn't, it ends in a way that it's like, huh, I, that's different and uh, intelligent. You know, I mean, it kind of, it makes you think you're mm-hmm. thinking about the movie after you're not just thinking about, wow, that shot was really cool or the aliens were super dope or, you know, whatever you're, you're thinking about the themes of the movie and I don't know if I can be riveted by a phone call being the climax of a big expensive alien movie that right. I don't know. It's kind of it, a contact came to mind too, while watching it. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I think contact it d- delves a little bit more into um, it, it's a little bit more. Uh, I don't want to say cartoony or like movie like, but it, I mean, that movie is doing, it's a little showier, you know, contact, I think, than than Arrival. Um, but I, I love contact as well because it, it makes you it's a little bit like slower and like more mature than your typical, I don't know, alien movie or time travel movie or whatever, where it's just like a little they're, they're playing a little fast and loose with the rules. The hypothesis I was talking about this movie presupposes that a hypothesis, it's called the Sapir, I'm going to mispronounce this, Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Okay. And uh, Jeremy Renner, Ian, explains it in in the VO very briefly. But the short version is that the structure of language affects the speaker's worldview Mm -hmm. and or cognition. And so people's perceptions are relative to their spoken languages. So I think these guys just noticed that a lot of the romance languages had very similar cultures. Now, I'm sure there's sociological reasons for that too, but 
in general, I think what they're getting at is that your language is sort of the operating system that the computer that is your brain is running on. It's the filter through which you see everything. And if you have a language that is linear and it starts on the left and it works its way to the right where it ends, you're going to start seeing things that way. Like the way Colonel Weber put it, when all you have in your toolbox is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail after a while. Right. Yeah. And these guys, the heptapods, have this circular language, written language. It's also established that when they put the written language up on that screen, they're also vocalizing, if you can call it that. Mm -hmm. But what they're vocalizing has nothing to do with what they're representing visually. They don't have a visual component to their spoken language. It's They're just communicating lots of stuff to you all at once. And Mm -hmm. they probably look at the way we communicate as being pretty inelegant. Right, right. You could, in fact, rewire your brain according to the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis by learning another language. And if it's an alien language, one that has no beginning or end where things are just communicated to you circularly, you'll start to perceive things that way. And you'll start to perceive time that way. And if it really is true that the famous saying is that time is the only thing that keeps the past, present, and future from happening at the same time. Right. And I guess that hypothesis is proven to be true in the the context of the movie because Amy Adams eventually sees time as that way. Not just that, but the heptapods came here specifically so that she could write that book, which will teach all of humanity to think that way. The world 10 years after this movie ends is way different from the movie, the, the world that the movie takes place in. Right. Because in a world where everyone can see that way, things are going to be a lot different. And they and the aliens even say the heptapods even say why that they're doing it, and it's because in three thousand years they need humanity's help and for something that will happen to them. I mean, it's not important to what happens to them in three thousand years isn't important to the story of this movie, but why they are there teaching human beings this their language is so that in three thousand years time they can help out the heptapods with whatever is happening on their home world, which is really, I mean, like, that's so cool. And I, I mean, I watched it last night and I forgot about that. I was like, oh, that's such an interesting. They're here for self-preservation. Right, uh, exactly. And not just that, they came here 3,000 years before they're going to need our help so that humanity has 3,000 years to learn that language and to get accustomed to thinking that way. Right. And then to be able to act and implement it. Yeah. Whatever their plan will be in 3000 years. Right. Which is a way that would be impossible to us now. Right. Which is a super sci-fi concept, you know, like the movie just does such a good job with that. I mean, it, it, it makes it makes the aliens such in- interesting characters and it really does make them characters like it's most they mostly communicate. I forgot that what they named the aliens, but they mostly communicate with two uh, and they give them individual names. Not that you can tell them apart. Abbott and Costello. Abbott and Costello. Yeah. Um, and it, it and just with that montage, like, you know, they're walking around like side by side with Jeremy Renner. And it's like, oh, cool. Like they're actually like they're not just like putting them there as things to look at and admire. Like they're making them real characters. She goes in their like little uh, vessel that takes them up because they go a little bit higher once they get attacked so that they don't have the human beings can't have access to the ship. And then she has like a five minute scene with one of them in their atmosphere. And it looks like she's underwater 
and she's like having the way they edit the audio there. It sounds like she's in sort of like a tube. So it's like a very muted soundtrack there. It's, it's so, it's so different and interesting. And just to conceptualize something like that is just what makes movies fun to watch because it's like, wow, I've never really seen anything like that before. And it's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The one thing I, I think that I did not get is how she was able to hang out with them in their environment. Now, I understand, like, as far as a plot device goes, that's very important because, as we mentioned earlier, she's got all these different layers between her and the creatures, and that symbolizes reluctance to live life and yeah. to just make hard decisions that she's going to have to live with. So, yeah, it makes sense for her to be in the room with them at the end. But why even have the big screen up to begin with if you don't need it? I mean, it seems like their atmosphere would be a whole lot different from ours. And they even went so far as to establish they let us into that area every X number of hours. Yeah, we I wonder why that hours. is. And then yeah. Ian says, well, the atmosphere you want to, you know, they want to give us breathable atmosphere. Right. They explain that at the beginning and then they just kind of chuck that to the side and they say, yeah. And also, by the way, she can breathe in that environment with them. I get, yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's a mistake. stuff, I guess. There, <laughs> yeah. there, there might be an 80 yard line in there somewhere that I missed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and it's definitely, it has to happen. Thematically, we need that because, again, they're stripping away all the different layers, the protective layers between her and the aliens. So we need that scene with her in there. Right. I just don't know if it really makes sense. I, I mean, I guess in terms of the movie, if you're on board with it at that point, you can sort of accept it. I just kind of chalk it up to, oh, weird alien technology. I'm not really thinking about, sure. I mean, of course, the thought crosses your mind, like, but I think they established in a way that it's not particularly pleasant for her to be in that atmosphere. I mean, she's like struggling to breathe and she's coughing. So it's obviously like uh, maybe she can't be in this environment for too long because it doesn't look very comfortable for her. Yeah. Um, the gravity's different. Her yeah, hair is kind of Which floating is around a little bit. And... Yeah. When they when they get scissor lifted into the craft. And oh, then that's it shows, so, it's disorienting. so disorienting. Yeah. And it's great. When you're watching it, it's like, man, I'm getting dizzy just watching this, you know, because it shows people jumping and then they sort of enter like a non-atmosphere and then they get gravity kicks in. And then it essentially looks like they're walking up a wall or up a corridor. Right. But then when they look down, everybody's horizontally. It, it's very interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's a very disorienting scene, but it. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's again, it's alien. It's just weird. I love the fact that, and I saw uh, Villeneuve talking about this recently too. Well, I recently saw Villeneuve talking about this, and they, they someone asked him, "Why did the alien ship? Why does it hover the way it does? Like it looks like it's like on its side." And he said, "Well, because this is we're not supposed to get it. There's supposed yeah. to be things about these creatures that we just." We just do not understand it. Yeah. And why normally you would see the big horizontal spaceship hovering horizontally over a flat, you know, the ground mm -hmm. and uh, tips it up on its side. And yeah, like we're, we're humans. If, we're not supposed to get it. Right. I wonder if, too, in Blade Runner, the character that uh, Jared Leto plays, he has these little hover things come out that act as his eyes. I wonder if that's a visual nod to the spacecraft in this movie because they're very similar, like, egg-shaped They are, now yeah. that you mention it. Yeah, they are. They're very they're, rounded. They're like his eyes in the movie, but I was like, oh, I wonder if that's, like, a nod to uh, Arrival. 
the music in particular too of this movie is just so good. Let's talk about that a little bit. I don't really have a lot to say about it. How do you pronounce the composer's name? Uh, last episode, I pronounced it Johan Johansson, but it's probably... How it, yeah, I believe that's how it... Unfortunately, I think Tenant was his last film. I think he passed away. Like, oh, did right he work? I know that he passed away. I didn't know that he yeah. had worked on Tenet. Let's see here. Yeah. I'm looking... In fact, I'm looking at his film scores. Uh, I don't... If they released a Tenet score, it's not listed here in his uh, discography. Oh, really? Yeah, I Yeah, think... it's got Arrival and then four more projects. Mandy. He worked on Mandy. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. that Yeah, it's great. Now that I'm reading that, though, it makes total sense. Yeah, it's very it's a very haunting theme in this. I mean, it's it's sort of like these like weird dissonant droning sounds and like again, like the whale calls. It's it's very it it almost blends in with the soundscape of the movie. So at times you're like, is this the music or is this? I was literally about to mention that because I've mentioned it several times during the course of this season that this guy in particular seems he seems to kind of hide his score a little bit. Yeah. He'll he'll make it blend in with what's actually happening on screen to the point where you're not mm-hmm. sure if that's the movie sound effects or if that's actually yeah. a part of the score. Yeah, yeah, and the whale stuff definitely. It's very it's it's creepy. I mean, especially when you first see like when you watch E.T., you're like, yeah, E.T.'s cute and cuddly once you get to know him. You know, like, I mean, he's pretty right. terrifying when you first see him. And then, I mean, when you first see the aliens in this, like, it's scary and it's very tense. And, you, and you're and you living that through the Louise character because you're seeing her expressions and how, you know, terrified she is. And then when she arrives at the base camp, like people are talking to her and briefing her and everything and she's just looking at this fucking craft you know and it's in soft focus and it's just like the back of her head focused and it's really really unsettling i mean because you you try to imagine how you would act in a situation like that like when i see that like expression on amy adams face especially when she comes back and they're like uh you know dousing her and whatever liquid or whatever and like hazmat suits and she's just sitting there in complete disbelief, you know, and same with Jeremy Renner's character. I mean, shaking, her hands are shaking. Yeah, shaking. I mean, it's really like, I I can't imagine the magnitude of witnessing and experiencing something like that, uh, truly alien. Uh, And they do just such a great job. And then over time, they build a relationship. So you become a little bit more accustomed to it. So it's not as scary like Elliot does with E.T. You know, Mm -hmm. like he's he's still kind of creepy looking, but... He's you you know that he's benevolent and gentle, but he's there's still always that unknown creepy element to him. You know, like he looks slimy and creepy and stuff. When I was watching this last night, I remember during that scene where Louise goes to find Ian and he's on the he's in the the bed of that truck out there in that valley, just kind of mm-hmm. driven away from the from the army setup, and they have that conversation. And like you said, in the background, it's at dusk. And in the background, in soft focus, is the ship. And I just remember looking at it and thinking, that looks so mundane. Yeah. That gigantic craft in the back. And they're acting like it's mundane. That's in stark contrast to the first time that they see it. Yeah. Full of awe and wonder. And then they see the, they they actually interact with the heptapods and they're shaken up by it and people are vomiting and they're just, they're, they're going through probably existential crises. Sure. But, you know. After two weeks, people can get used to anything, pretty much. And sure enough, in the background, there's this thing, this big monument, this 
testament to the fact now, the fact that humans are not alone and that there are other intelligent creatures yeah. out there and they want to have some sort of a rapport with us. It's right there. The biggest news that humanity has ever gotten. And it's just kind of in soft focus and they're having conversations about really the theme of the movie. And I suppose the theme of the movie yeah. is, you know, how would how would I live my life if I were not afraid? And it's the same reason why mm -hmm. she has that kid knowing full well what's going to happen. And she yeah. she has that kid. And that's that's the completion of her arc. Right. Knowing full well that she's going to love this child. And then when the kid is, what, a tween, early teens, yeah, 14, she's going to get yeah. a disease and it's going to slowly kill her. It's a bittersweet ending. The fact that earlier on in the movie, she says something about like civilization's or like the cornerstone of life is language or something. And then Jeremy Renner disagrees with her and says it's science. But then he, you know, like it's, she communicates that in X amount of time, their daughter that they'll eventually have will die. And him coming from a scientific background can't accept that, you know, because it hasn't happened yet. And how could she possibly know that? But because he's a science-minded individual, so he can't really – I mean, he accepts it, but he leaves. So that's why it's revealed, you know, she's speaking with her daughter when she's just eight or nine maybe. And she's asking, why did dad leave? And she says that he couldn't accept something that I told – that I communicated to him. It's interesting. I mean, it's sad. And you know that at least that she'll be able to experience being a mother and loving a child and everything and having a life with – uh, the Ian character, knowing that eventually it will come to an end. Yeah. You know? and, and it's but, not even that long. Yeah. I mean, the little girl, yeah, and it's really it's, when she has the conversation, why did daddy leave me? I mean, she had to be what nine or something. I mean, she was, yeah, she's, she's, she's very young. young so yeah. he left years before the little girl got sick. In fact, I'm looking at the credits yeah. here. There are three girls credited uh, as playing Hannah, six year old, eight year old, and a 12 year old. And by the way, yeah. The one moment I thought the movie could have withheld a little bit of info and not just handed it to us was when they mentioned that her name was a palindrome. And it, a palindrome. Because when yeah, she yeah. said her name, I'd forgotten that. And I looked at my wife and I said, oh, that's kind of cool. Her name is a palindrome. It's like it's the circular thing. And then Amy Adams explained it. And I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it. <laughs> You gotta, you gotta, you gotta dumb it down. I guess so. A it's bit. a general I mean, like, audiences movie, and, and the movie yeah. really. And I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. yeah, no, it makes sense for her character to have named her daughter that, having the knowledge that she does at that particular yeah. time. It, I mean, it's a little on the nose, and there's one I can forgive that one, but there's one, there's one line that it's like, oh, but I mean, it's 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 delivered well, and it's, um, but it's the line when. You know, everything is over and the climax has happened and it's just Amy Adams and, and Jeremy Renner sitting on the, or they're standing together or something. And he says, like, all my life I've had my head in the stars, but the thing I was looking for was you or something like that. It's like, ah, yeah, you know, I mean, it's a little, yeah. a little hokey, yeah. but I'm fine with a little bit of uh, emotional core and understanding. I, I think that Denny Villeneuve is able to balance those heady ideas with also making it easy and widely acceptable to like general audiences. I think he, I think he balances that line a little bit cleaner than someone like Christopher Nolan does. There's a heady concept at the center of this whole thing. 
it's yeah. tough to understand. And if you were just trying to explain this to some guy on the street that had never seen the movie, they would go, that, that sounds like a clusterfuck. And that's way over my yeah, head. That's but boring. no, they, they dole yeah. it out and, you know, just enough. They don't beat you over the head with it. They don't make you feel stupid for not getting it. They hold your hand. They walk you through it. And there's only like maybe yeah. the one time where I kind of was like, all right, that was a little too much. You didn't have to spell it yeah. out that explicitly. But even then, that's right. that's fine. It's nothing unforgivable. Sure. Is there anything else in this movie you want to talk about before we wrap it up? I think we're getting close to the end here. Uh, yeah, I mean, the I, we touched a little bit on the cinematography. I think it's, it's great. I think all the actors are great. But yeah, just uh, beautiful cinematography. I love the... Um, the intimacy of it and it's very dark and especially in those like military base areas it's all kind of lit from these just these overhead lights and i i remember watching a bunch of behind the scenes stuff with bradford young and how he talks about he doesn't like to use a lot of equipment on his sets because it takes away from the space that they're trying to occupy as the characters and so it's a lot of it is um, just very like murky and, and creepy and clinical, you know, and I really like that. And when you get even when you get into the alien spacecraft, it's very clean and clinical looking. And I mean, just conceptually, again, just the, that scene is like, I mean, it, it's clearly all lit. For, and I don't know if you've seen behind the scenes video like that is what the set looks like. It's all lit from that screen and uh they may have had some bounce light, you know, and close-ups and stuff, but yeah, just his his approach to cinematography and and filmmaking in general, I, I really really like because he he was also the DP on Solo, and I, as much as I like his work, I I don't feel like his aesthetics or his eye for cinematography necessarily fit Star Wars. Like I I felt like. I mean, there were scenes in Solo that I was like, I, I can't even see the characters' faces in this, you know? But in, for something like this, where it's very serious, it, it takes itself very seriously, I think he, it works brilliantly. I mean, it, it's, I mean, just that establishing shot that we were talking about is just so just beautiful to look at and, the, and how long it holds on that shot. I mean, it's, it's really, really cool. Like you said earlier, it'll probably go down in history. It'll be it'll be remembered as one of those one of those shots. Yeah, like oh, what's that movie? What's movie is that from? That's know? kind of a show offy. I don't mean that to be dismissive, but that's the the flashier shot in the movie that'll probably go down in history. But the one I think that means the most thematically is just that one with uh, Amy Adams's hand on that screen. That, by the way, looks like a movie theater screen, and I don't think that's by accident. Yeah, that could, <laughs> that could be true. Yeah, it does. It does look like a big movie theater screen. Ted, I think we got it. I think Sweet. I think we I think we said all the stuff. Ted, thanks so much for being on the show again. Yeah, I had a good time talking about this one, man. This is a this is a good one. It's a good. Movie. It, it really is yeah. a great one to anyone who hasn't seen it, and I, I I highly recommend it. Even for people that aren't fans of sci-fi, I found have really enjoyed this movie just because of its themes and and what it's conveying. It's it's a good one. It's not a dumb forget after you, like immediately after you watch it consumption movie. Like it's one that really kind of sticks with you and and has some interesting things to say. And there's there's heart. It's got a lot of heart. I mean, at the end heart, of the day, this sure. movie's moral is live life unafraid. Even if you know you're going to lose something, at least it's better to have had it. Right. And and just communicate, you know, like learn how to communicate, you know, not to get too political or anything but i think in in times that we live in that we've all been experiencing lately uh clear communication is kind of key 
you know, and any, and transparency is like paramount. Again, without getting preachy, I'll make this super brief, but yeah, the villain of this is miscommunication and lack of communication. Clear communication is the hero here. Somehow this movie without a villain, (laughs) which has just a conceptual villain. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's refreshing to watch something that is quote unquote boring and deals with like the science aspect of an insane situation as something like aliens coming down to visit. It, it, it's just interesting. It doesn't take that movie trope route. You know, it, it's like, nope, like this is two nerds trying to figure out how the fuck do we deal with this, yeah. you know? And like the world, you know, has two other nerds in different parts of the country, like trying to figure out what the hell is going on as opposed to Randy Quaid flying into the spaceship and blowing it up at the end, you know? To describe somebody this movie, this elevator pitch, this is a shit movie. This is nothing I want to watch if you just pitched it to me. This doesn't sound. But you have to throw in that caveat, like, yeah, we're going to do all that boring shit. But the filmmaking and the acting and the directing and the cinematography and the editing and the music is all going to be just top shelf. And how would you rank it in terms of uh, his filmography? uh, Upper mid tier, I guess. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I haven't yeah. seen them all since I haven't seen the, the the super early stuff. I haven't seen all of his French language work, but uh, mm-hmm. this is the stuff I have seen of it is not very far removed from the English language stuff that we've been talking about this season. Yeah, maybe upper middle tier, perhaps. Uh, yeah, it, it's a lot yeah. like Sicario in that this is a story that's been told before, sort of. If you were to just give someone right. the elevator pitch, this story's been told before and there's nothing really, there's not a lot that elevates it. But yeah, man, just the way everything is presented, the fact that they actually have a theme for the movie and it's fleshed out. And, yeah. you know, to know where this movie ends is to understand the beginning because the beginning, they just kind of chuck you in. But once you've seen it, go back and watch it. It's It's great. Yeah, it really is. Ted, thanks so much for being on the show again, man. Thanks a lot, Jason. And that's it for this episode. I'd like to thank my guest, Ted Ringeisen. You can find Ted on Instagram at dinobear2086. That's D-I-N-O-B-E-A-R-2086. Also, check out his proof of concept called Previous Tenant that's on Vimeo right now. It's fantastic. It's only like less than five minutes long and totally worth your time. He's a very talented director and cinematographer. I'd also like to thank Michael Eads, Will Fox, and Ross Warner. You can find us on Instagram at filmography underscore club underscore podcast. Give us a follow there, won't you? And while you're at it, feel free to give us a rating, maybe leave a review if you're feeling generous with your time. Filmography Club is produced by the always hardworking folks that we own this town in Nashville, Tennessee. This is Filmography Club. I'm Jason Cavanis. Thank you for listening. <laughs>